Hello and welcome to Politics Laid Bare with Tim O'Hare. I'm your host, Tim O'Hare. Today, my guest is Dennis Hayes. Dennis Hayes is a professor of education at the University of Derby, and he's the founder of Academics for Academic Freedom. He is the author of a number of books, including The Dangerous Rise of Therapeutic Education, The Rutledge Guide to Key Debates in Education, The McDonaldization of Higher Education, Beyond McDonaldization, and the forthcoming The Death of Academic Freedom. Uh, welcome, Dennis. I suppose uh, to start with, what is academic freedom and why is it something worth fighting for? Academic freedom is free speech, simply. Um, in 1974, a British academic, Anthony Arblaster, wrote a book on academic freedom. And um, he started it with this statement that um, academic freedom is a pompous term for freedom of and within education, a pompous term for free, basically for free expression. And um, he defended the right um, to put forward unorthodox opinions and advocate them openly and have them challenged. And I think um, if we don't have if we don't believe in free speech in society, which is in decline, I think in most um, Western societies, you know, there's less justification for academic freedom. So I see academic freedom as a continuation of free speech. It's actually it's intensification. And there was a very good manifesto written by um, a group of staff and students at the University of Aberdeen, which was called Reclaiming Our University in 2016. Um, and they argued that exact point. There isn't a difference between the free speech of the citizen and the free speech of academics. It's just that academics have been chosen and allowed to um, take that free speech further, to be paid to actually research their opinions, defend them, and to challenge um, orthodox opinion. And the society allows that is very, very important. In New Zealand, they, even in um, 1990, there was a, a, a law pass that universities have the duty to be the conscience and conscience and critics of society. So that's why I think we need universities and we need academic freedom to be the critics of society. Okay, so when did you start Academics for Academic Freedom? So an interesting story. I was writing um, articles um, um, for the Times Higher Education magazine here. And so was um, Roy Harris, who was the Emeritus Professor of Linguistics at the University of Oxford. And I'll just give you an example. Um, he wrote things like speaking out for the right to speak evil. And I was um, writing articles in defense of free speech and very concerned about the rise of the therapy um, industry in higher education. Anyway, we he phoned me up and said, what are we going to do about it? So we had lunch and we thought, what shall we actually do? We keep writing these articles. So we thought, we'll make, first of all, we'll write a statement of academic freedom, which became the AFAF statement of academic freedom, which is that academics have unrestricted liberty to question and test received wisdom and to put forward controversial or unpopular opinions without in any way being subject to discipline or losing their jobs. So it was reported in the um, press as academics de defend the right to offend. So we asked people to sign up to this statement 
and to put their names to it. It was a sort of line in the sand for academics. And so we kept doing that and we kept writing about academic freedom and defending it. And it became a big debate. We did push the university and college union in um, the UK to make a statement of academic freedom. Because unlike the American Association of University Professors, academic freedom is not part of their aims and objectives. So there is the tension. So we didn't have the union, if you like, the left, not defending academic freedom. And um, so since then, we've gone on and we're now a major pressure group. And we spend a lot of time doing case work for, for academics who are threatened with disciplinary action or even dismissal because of what they say at work. So we've gone from being a campaigning group around a statement to a campaigning group around a whole range of issues. And on our website, we have a, a list which we call the banned list of every person we can find who's been threatened with being no platformed or sacked or disciplined for speaking at a university. So, so that, that's our work. We're now the biggest campaign group. And um, because of this, I've become part of the um, advisory group on a new free speech union, which was set up by Tony Young in February this year, which is essentially a, a trade union that defends anybody, not just in academia, but in every um, industry and every part of the public sector who's threatened, whose free speech is threatened. And um, since it was founded you know, in February, it's got almost 4,500 members and has taken up lots of cases. So we're doing a lot of casework and a lot of it is confidential. So, um, so that's, we've gone on from being a statement to being a, a campaigning group and a sort of um, advisory group for academics who are being threatened. And we do get you know, almost every week quite senior academics come into is concerned about what's going to happen if they speak up about any issue. So it's a major issue for academics that they feel they're being censored and disciplined at work all the time in the UK. Yeah, I've, um, like you, I've had a background uh, in school teaching uh, and one of my former guests, uh, Tanvir Ahmed, who's an Australian psychiatrist, he talked about how uh, schools like High secondary schools have become uh, quite uh, infiltrated with uh, psychology, with counselling. Uh, students are, uh, appear a lot more fragile, uh, and the presence uh, of the counsellor uh, in you know my own high schooling a decade ago, uh, they were a pretty subtle presence. Unless you had an appointment, you would never see them. Whereas today, it does feel like in a standard classroom of, say, 30 students, you would have upwards of 50% of the classroom uh, seeing a counsellor. And uh, so I'm curious if that's having an effect then uh, with this new generation, whatever you call them, Generation I, where... Uh, they have become more fragile, they have become more pathologized, and then they're going into university and they're seeing lecturers uh, talk about something that, you know, doesn't uh, affirm their view of the world and they're getting triggered. Uh, I'm curious if there's a phenomenon there. Well, when we wrote The Dangerous Rise of Therapeutic Education in 2008, we had a chapter using a term that I'd coined earlier, the therapeutic university. And um, people were criticizing that chapter for two reasons. They said, one, there's not enough evidence that it's had a therapeutic turn. And um, it's not the sort of thing that could ever happen to a university because it pursues knowledge rigorously. Of course, eight years after when we were writing up 
a second edition in 2016, the Snowflake generation, so-called Snowflake generation, came to university. And we were a bit um, short-sighted, I think, because we were, we'd gone through every area of education, you know, from the nursery you know, almost, almost to retirement classes, showing how the therapeutic turn was happening, you know, obsessions with self-esteem, happiness, resilience, and, and more recently, my, um, mental health and mindfulness activities in schools. And um, of course, that generation, which was obsessed by being safe and never offended, suddenly came to university. And I'm reluctant to blame them as being fragile, because I think the university welcomed them as fragile individuals. I'll give you a story. So I, I love um, collecting these things. I'd written a a short piece publicizing something I'd done on academic freedom and free speech. And I sent it to a friend of mine who's the um, was then the um, media relations person for the university. And he checked it through and sent it back. And he'd added a sentence, and I will never forget it. It's uh, academic free, free speech and academic freedom has to be balanced by the need to protect vulnerable young minds. The need to protect vulnerable young minds. So I said, no, take it out. We took it out. But he'd done it spontaneously. He just that's the way people now think about young people. I think they have a very diminished sense of students. I mean, in Britain, we don't have um, freshers weeks anymore. We have welcome weeks you know, an endless counselling and um, for students as soon as they arrive. But it, it does stretch to um, what they're expected. They're not going to be able to cope with their classes. I'll just give you another one because I, like, I think anecdotes tell stories. We were talking to some colleagues some time ago about what we would do with the new students, and um, some of them said, "Oh well, they'll be too frightened to speak, so we'll give them post-its, and so they can write down their questions and pass them to the, <laughs> the, the lecturer." So we said no, and of course they didn't. No, they were quite happy to speak. So I think it's the universities, certainly in Britain, have become. Um, oversensitive to um, the difficulty students have in leaving home and going to university, which used to be a brilliant time. You, know, you, you left university, you, you went to, to uh, met new friends and you organize your own activities. But now we have teams of people organizing the student experience for them. So it, you know, and it becomes a very, very difficult situation. But I think universities encourage it because if you um, see people as vulnerable, then you get some authority from protecting them. And I do think it's it's a mistake that people often make. You can see it in in you know, in the recent um, tearing down of statues, both in the US and here, where people get offended. And you think, well, are those fragile people pulling down statues? No, they're not. But fragility is a really interesting thing. If you claim you're a victim, you don't make yourself vulnerable and weak. You make yourself strong. Because who dares criticise a victim? You know, and, and a lot of the cases we've had recently if where people have challenged the notions of white privilege or questioned black lives matters or made any criticisms about um, trans um, rights or trans campaigns immediately people come down on them hard they're not allowed to do it because you shouldn't criticize anybody who's seen as a victim and i think what we've seen develop and i think over the last um, 20 years at least is um, the idea of human beings as essentially vulnerable you know, people don't say this. Young, there's the idea that young people can't cope, and they buy into it sometimes. And you can see it um, when they get to university. You know, if they're approached and they're challenged and they get a good education, you know, they don't become anything like a snowflake. 
But if, they, if you treat them as if they're not going to be able to cope, then you'll find they won't be able to cope. And they'll love to have things, you know, like, I don't know if you have, I'm sure you do have the same. We have petting zoos and therapy dogs and a whole range of things that sort of take away the stress of students during the whole year, not just counselling, but you have, you know. I, I know one of the examples I had, um, I collect these things. I went to, um, I think it was the London School of Economics, and on the wall there was a poster which was called Overcoming Perfectionism. And they had a course for students, and this is one of the top universities in the world, that, you know, and it, it said, I'll paraphrase it, you, know, you, you might come to LSE and you want to really achieve, get a fantastic degree and go back and perhaps uh, be a leader in your country, and that might cause you stress. So come and do this course so you can lower your expectations. And you see those things, and even in schools, Oxford School for Girls had a course called um, uh, the, death of Mrs. Of, um, the, the Death of Little Miss Perfect which is the same thing, to try and stop the students getting too stressed by wanting to be the best. These top-tier to universities, high. basically, I wonder how that is for their marketing. They're saying, you know, get used to being second best. I, I thought the idea of going to Oxford was kind of your elite. <laughs> well, Oxford is slightly um, difficult because they're ambiguous. Uh, Louise Richardson, you know, was one of my heroes for standing out against Roads Must Fall and saying, "We come here to have free speech." But it's everywhere. I, I remember um, I, I went to the Institute of Education at, at Oxford, the Department of Education, and they were saying, "Oh, we don't go in for all this therapy stuff here." And I went down to the library, and all the books were on therapy, <laughs> all the ones on display. It was the same. I went to New York University, and I went to their bookshop, and they're they're exactly the same. You know all about therapy so the idea that you're vulnerable is there and i think um you know how it comes out it's 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 contested obviously it's not always the case it depends on what who your lecture is and what was actually happening to you but you know the oxford tutorial um lecturers say to me now has changed it used to be um, another anecdote and i used to have a friend who did ethics with a very famous um classicist and she would say to him Oh, hello, um, Andy, how are you doing? You know, are you getting enough to eat? And then she would take his essay and then demolish it, you know, line by line about, about how poor it was intellectually and badly researched. But now it's much more therapy. You know, you have that um, much more time talking about personal problems. So things shift. But, but you can use it. I mean, we did it when it came out, the snowflake came out. We, we used it as a term, almost a joke. So some of my PhD students will say things like, um, can I have a snowflake moment? <laughs> Tell you a little bit about what they do before you get into the hard stuff you're discussing in their work. So I think if you don't if you don't buy into it, you know, that um, and then students won't become like that. I mean, one of the obvious examples of this was with the obsession with bullying um, in in schools, where people can really obsess and bullying has become so um, ill-defined now. Almost anything counts as bullying. You know, send somebody an email saying, "Have you?" have you marked your essays and staff will say oh that's a bullying email and I wrote something about being bullied just grow up and um, you know we're adults we're not in the playground and then I suddenly realized that of course the more you tell people the bullied the more they start to feel bullied and then it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy and we're seeing it now and one of the things you know we keep tracking the changes as I said from self-esteem to resilience to happiness and now to mental health problems so people will say that up to 70% of students have mental health problems. And you, you, anybody with any brains can see that that's basically misusing the term mental health. Anybody who's like a slightly anxious or 
stress suddenly has a mental health problem. And, and you can see it um, in um, tutorials. I heard some students coming out of a, a tutorial and um, they'd obviously had a hard time and they said, this is how they expressed it, um, wow, that really affected my mental health. Right. So you're learning a new language. So when you have um, you know, a good, perhaps, criticism of your work, it's now affecting your mental health. And you can see that you know, it's not that students are like this. It's that I think there's a sort of unwritten philosophy that students can't cope. I mean, obviously, universities can't advertise you for saying they can't say, come here because you can't cope or we'll help you cope. But what they will say, I know one university, I think it's um, Aberystwyth here, says it's the safest university in the UK. You know, come here, there's no crime, it's the safest place to be. So the, so it, that gets slightly shifted. So it's the opposite, you know, being safe. I mean, it, it may not be the, the case in, um, in the US, but in, um, in the UK, Ofsted, which the Office for um, Standards in Education, have one rule that all students must be safe. So throughout the, the primary, secondary school career, safety is the obsession in schools. Now, that's a nebulous must, term. Yeah. But it just means they must never feel offended. And that's, you know, and you, know, you can sort of, um, you know, they learn the language, you know, that uh, they feel vulnerable and offended. And sometimes it can be quite jokey. I mean, they learn the, the language of safety. One of the examples we use in the book was of, um, an eight-year-old boy who refused to eat his peas at home. And um, so mum says, you've got to eat these peas. And his, his statement was, I feel very uncomfortable having to eat these peas. Right? So you're learning the sort of therapeutic language to get your own way. And that's the, um, you, know, you can just see that happening in, in every area of life. You know, if you criticize people too much, I mean, I don't mean that them personally, but criticize their work, they'll start to say, no, that's really hurting my self-esteem. So all that language is there, which makes it very, very difficult to function in the academy. And I know you asked me about the big threats to um, free speech, perhaps from the left, but I think it's much more the therapeutic culture in universities that the threat to free speech, because you just don't want to offend anybody. Well, that, that, that's interesting. Then... There's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I'm curious with the okay. uh, therapeutic culture. I mean, we're talking a lot on this podcast about schools and universities, and I think they play a huge part, but I'm curious how much this kind of therapeutic culture is part of a larger kind of social shift. I mean, what we're seeing is kids are basically, people are more or less thought of as children from uh, the cradle to, I don't know, age 30. I mean, kids are, are not leaving home until late or they're moving back in with their parents. Uh, gone are the days, as you said, where you you go off to university and you're totally free from your family. Uh, today, w w what you're finding is adulthood, maturity, uh, raising children, it's all pushed back a long time. And I'm curious if there's just, I don't know, almost a culture that is uh, just... People are simply maturing late and it's almost as though universities and schools are just responding uh, to that cultural shift. You're quite right. I mean, I think to the age of about 90 now, the therapeutic culture is there. I don't think it's um, 30. Uh, but there is a lot of, I mean, Jonathan Haidt has argued that, isn't it? It's parenting that's the problem. But Jenny Bristow, um, who's um, an academic at um, Canterbury Christchurch University, is, um, 
as, makes the point that at the same time as young people get infantilized and spend longer that they're spending more time with their parents they're more dependent on their parents in a way but i think if you step back from it i mean we tracked it in the book if you think about um, we have a 1989 was the cutoff date for us, you know, the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the end of the old fashioned politics of um, you know, the Cold War politics. And we tried to have into that vacuum of people like what replaces the Soviet Union? We haven't got an enemy. You know, was it drug lords? Was it you know, um, Islamic terrorists? People weren't quite work sure what it was going to be. But into that vacuum came therapy. You, know, you remember Bill Clinton's great phrase, I feel your pain. And that sort of you know, people described some of the democratic congresses as like therapy sessions. And I think that gradually spread. So it became the new politics. The new, I called it um, T2V, therapy to victims. So that's um, exactly what started happening. It spontaneously filled the gap. It's how you relate it. Have you no political ideas? You relate to people as a therapist. You know, I feel your pain. Can I help you actually do anything? But you do, you offer them some forms of therapy and consolation. And I think that became systematized and then became a political project in many ways. Certainly in the UK, you know, in um, one of the northern towns, all peoples are being given counseling, whether they need it or not. You know, it's become just what you do. The idea that you need happiness classes and so on. It's just, um, it's absolutely everywhere. And there's a lot of money in it. So we describe it as the cash nexus. You know, I, there's, there's a story about the book when it, we first went with another publisher and the dangerous rise of therapeutic education and um, they didn't want it because they said a book um, promoting therapeutic education would sell many many copies but this one won't sell that much they were wrong of course but um, but there is an industry out there selling um you know well, snake oil really in, term, in dressed up as therapy to um, education this everywhere in schools so i think um it's a political culture, really. It's sort of the replacement of old-fashioned left-right politics with a therapeutic culture. I mean, there are residues of the old left and the old right still exist. There's no doubt about that. But often they re they crouch what they're concerned about in therapeutic terms. So it's much more about vulnerable workers, for instance, if you're a, a trade unionist or in, in British Labour Party. That's the sort of way you look at people as vulnerable. Gone are the days of the miners' strike where Mrs. Thatcher said workers are the enemy within, they're now seen as vulnerable. So I think it's been a complete shift. It's almost a new philosophy of human beings that we're all unable to cope and we all need help. And that's something you can't say publicly. You know, you can't, no government come out and say, well, you're all hopeless. You know, we've got to help you. You can't cope with anything. But they just offer you all these things. And of course, um, I was thinking about when you took you saying about free speech because the big issue in, in the UK, of course, was Brexit. That became an issue in universities where um, nobody dare say they're in favour of Brexit. So I live in an area which is over 70% pro-Brexit. But you know, no academic dare say publicly. What well, one or two did, I did. I can make fun of people about it, but most people just kept quiet. But 90% you know, of academics were against brexit now all and the interesting thing about this is the effect it has on students is all the students i mean a lot around here are brexit supporters and they come from brexit families all the students wow um, well you just think well, our students are often local but they don't say it i mean not all obviously not all but the majority of them are, are from brexit families so you have academics saying this is brexit's dis disgraceful you know you're you're all racist and ignorant or ill-educated Ill this is the sort of thing 
So students learn very quickly uh, not to say anything. I, I know this is true. We had a TV company come um, to Derby. To, I mean, they wanted students to come and speak. And it was really, really hard to get students to come and say they were in favour of Brexit because they didn't want anybody to know. So if you think about that sort of, sort of that's almost old-fashioned political self-censorship, but it, it does happen. But that was that is a, a major issue. And even today, I mean, I, I was trying to count at my university. I think there are five people out of all the you know, thousand academics who I know to be Brexit supporters, and only two of them, I think, or three, are public are public about it. That tells you something about the climate, you know. And I, I think if you if you've got any views on any issue. You just keep quiet for, for the danger you might be threatened. And you, you do find it that people will now, if you go onto social media and say anything critical, people start sending messages to your employer, either direct or indirect. Oh, yes, you work at this university. Or they will email your employer saying, don't employ this person. So that idea of academic mobbing, very, very um, common now. And people say it hasn't changed, there always has been it. But we logged in the band list. There's many more academic mobs now. Um, that mobs of academics, that is, who are trying to get people sacked for their views. That, that That's something I had uh, written down. But before we move on from therapy, I did want to just ask, I mean, it's a question I haven't written down, but I've wrestled with it for a long time about, you look at uh, young people today, I mean... I'm well. I'm a young person, but people younger than me, with like fourteen-year-olds, for instance, and I often wrestle with the question: Is are they more free or less free today? Because on one hand, they've got helicopter parents who probably won't let them go to the park unsupervised, but then on the other hand, they've got disciplinary bodies uh, stopping their parents really. Uh, administering any kind of discipline at home, stopping their teachers, uh, more or less advocate. They've got uh, school counsellors and the like, and, uh, you know, the the legal community, uh, the bureaucrats, more or less creating a system that uh, just about prevents uh, kids from really having to do much of what they don't like to do. So in some ways, it's definitely very much their way on others... They've got, they're so fragile and precious, they can't uh, do any, they're not allowed to do anything. So I just wanted your thoughts on that. It seems a paradox to me. Well, it is true. I mean, as I mentioned, the safeguarding um, rules in schools and in all um, areas of life, you know, you have to get um, 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 approval to work with uh, young people. You have to have... Um, be verified that you're not uh, got a criminal record or so on. But I do think I mean I know about the um, let grow movement in in the, in the United States, and um, I think it is it is a problem, but it's not one that students can't overcome. And young people can't overcome. Sorry, what's the let grow movement? It's, um, it's the movement to encourage people to go outside and um, and take take risky activities. Started. Um, in New York, but it's gone on to now be quite big. Well, I thought it was quite big, um, um, but it, it is just, um, I mean, some areas in the US have, set, have signed up to it, I think, so encouraging kids to actually go out and play and not get into trouble. But it, it was the case that, um, you know, in London, for instance, where you can access the town centre by tube very easily, um, there was um, 
some groups of teachers and others trying to encourage schools to go into London as people there is a retreat into the local area. So people are a bit active in their local area, but they, you know, it is true that they are not doing the things they used to do, but you know, they might be doing them on the internet. One of the things that is really interesting is that every generation complains about the children not doing anything. So it's like to keep saying it's up to them, but you know, I, I don't see it as something that can't be overcome very quickly. I mean, my concern is when people come to university and I think if they're then given opportunities to do things, they just do them. And I, and I will say one of the shifts that I saw over the last two years, two, three years, is students setting up free speech societies. And in the UK, there's Liberate the Debate and the, in, there's um, the University of Buckingham have got free speech society. Kent have got a free speech society. There was even a Get Off the Fence um, society at Derby. And, They've just arose spontaneously. So I think young people are, are tired of being told they, they can't engage in the debate, they can't do things. So I do think you know, no matter how you're brought up, it's not going to affect you forever. I think the danger is to think that because you were brought up in a way and restricted, you know, I would look at it the other way and say, well, you're at university, now become free. Do the things you've been restricted from doing. You know, I just, But I don't think enough people say that. I mean, people still I mean, treat universities as if it's big school. I mean, I said before, the fact we have lots of people organising the student experience, you organise volunteering for them, you organise clubs for students, you organise things, you organise social events. You know, students used to do that themselves. That used to be the student experience. So if you let them do it, they'll do it. And I think that's you know, the really important thing. Well, well I, we guess, have I guess what I'm, I'm getting at, though, is, I mean, they've got... It seems to me like perhaps students have like a very uh, artificial uh, freedom. It's almost like a state-prescribed freedom where, for instance, uh, if a teacher keeps them in detention for not doing their homework, uh, that teacher will get a, uh, you know, a figurative slap on the wrist and that student will not be uh, sent to detention anymore. So they've got a bureaucracy that is constantly lobbying for them, uh, lobbying uh, that their parents treat them a certain way, but at the same time, it's also a bureaucracy that looks at this uh, child or adolescent as a very uh, fragile individual that cannot uh, withstand opinions contrary to them, that cannot uh, be held accountable for their actions. Well, there's a kickback against that. In the UK, we've got, I mean, one of the classic examples of the kickback is uh, Catherine Burble Singh, who runs a, a free school called Michaela, and she's held to be the most strict um, headmistress in Britain. And they're it's really organised, and she, they deal with a lot of kids from poor backgrounds, and discipline's her main thing, but discipline so they can access a knowledge-based curriculum. You know, there's East London Science School in one of the most deprived areas of London. You know, it's very strict about all these issues. And those, those schools are spreading all over. So there's now um, a knowledge schools network. And I think, so there is a kickback against that. I think that was there a few years ago, but there is a slight drift back towards um, more traditional forms of discipline. But that's or interesting. I, I did hear that, uh, that interview uh, with the headmistress, uh, on Brendan O'Neill's yeah. podcast. I mean, the way it is interesting, I mean, you being from the UK, myself being from Australia, it does seem we're not, 
from what I can observe in the education uh, profession, we're not really having that kind of kickback yet. But in uh, the flip side is, I don't think, and this is something I've heard from Brennan O'Neill, who travels between both, I don't feel like uh, Australia is as far gone as the UK. So it hasn't exactly mobilised teachers to sort of uh, form these independent schools to push back against the declining uh, discipline and responsibility. Well, I think um, we were discussing with Mark Lehane, who um, now runs the um, um, Common Sense um, um, group in um, the UK, about where the knowledge-based education initiatives came from. And um, there were, were very few people originally, but I think Michael Gove and Nick Gibb, who are ministers, when we're both um, Education Secretary and Minister of State for Education, really promoted a knowledge-based education. How they did it was partly through funding, but they encouraged schools to set up subject-based networks. And I think they've been working very hard. But there was, you know, there was a, we, a meeting we held at Pimlico School, which is another knowledge-based school, in about 2012. And we tried to get together everybody just to have a discussion, a sort of evening. Uh, and we got a hundred people. So we had Munira Mesa and Claire Fox and lots of other people talking about um, the way forward for knowledge-based schools. And Munira made the point there that a few years before that, you would only had five people and a dog in a room talking about knowledge-based schools. But it, it's now, um, you know, individuals have built it. They've built their schools and they've networked with other schools. And uh, they've also picked up some traditional schools, so some Catholic schools are still very much knowledge-based, and they've joined, and um, sort of independent schools. But it, it is hard work, but it's much more um, positive picture now than it's ever been, and it, it's growing. But there's still resistance, of course, particularly from the teacher unions in the UK. That That's curious. So um, I suppose... Uh... We touched on the, well, the idea you have that therapeutic culture is uh, it's almost replacing the traditional left-right dichotomy. But I am curious, I mean, uh, from what I hear of you, not knowing you uh, too well, you seem like the kind of person that a generation ago would typically have been described as left wing i mean you're a trade unionist my understanding is uh you're very much uh an advocate for education being you know accessible uh to the working class would you still identify yourself as left wing um not if i can help it i mean the um it's, you know why use a term that is sort of defunct and um it used to be an issue i think um i know people um who've been involved in left-wing politics. I mean, obviously that's background and no um, history, I'm not can conceal it for a second, but um, people who claim to be left-wing and Marxist now tend to not be. I think that's part of the issue, you know, and that goes for um, many very well-known groups at the current moment. But I do think, um, you know, if uh, the legacy of being left-wing, I think would be to say that, uh, you know, I knew my Marx quite well, I studied it, um, and the most important thing is to be historically specific, to understand what's changed. And one thing I do with my students is to get them to do, um, when they're starting any subject, to do a chronology. And not just of dates, but of major incidents and things that happened. But not to look back and see what's the same, but to see what's different. 
So you have to try and see what's different about now rather than track it back to things in the past. Because it is amazing, you know, when the, Toby Young set up the Free Speech Union, um, and because he's a well seen to be a right wing journalist, conservative. But a lot of everybody on that advisory board come from all different political persuasions. So there's you know, Claire Fox from the Academy of Ideas, there's me, there's right wing, left wing thinkers. So it's a real mix of people. So I don't think it sort of matters in the way that it used to do. I mean, some people just wear it as a badge, you know, I'm an old you know, member of the Communist Party or whatever. And there is a real irony. Um, I used to know somebody who edited the Communist Party's theoretical journal, sort of kept it quiet. And then when we got into the research excellence framework recently, you know, suddenly you can claim all these things. Whereas before it would have been anathema, but now it's just quite sentimental, you know, that you were that in the past. So I, I'm just very wary about people. I can I can see debates going on between people who just want to label you and um, put you in a category. I don't mind it, but um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily use it. Yeah, f- fair and, enough. And use- I mean... I mean I, Sorry, I tend to use the term libertarian, if anything, or humanist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it is quite a common uh, trajectory going from left-wing uh, to libertarian. Uh, arguably, I've gone the same trajectory, but I, I am interested, though, because... And, again, left-wing is a bit of a simplification, but it does feel... Like, we've got an academic climate uh, today that leans disproportionately to the left. And many would say, well, that's always how it's been. I mean, there is a bit of a structural uh, kind of preference, if you will, uh, for left-wing thought amongst academics. Uh, The old old notion is that, you know, if you're sort of... uh, concerned with money and you're more corporate and entrepreneurial uh you might go into the private sector whereas if you're concentrated on ideas education and research uh you might be more inclined towards the university so some would say this bias is inadvertent but it does feel to me like in the last decade or the last um two decades or so this whatever you call it uh this bias in academia, it's become a lot more totalitarian, it's become a lot more mobilised, and it's prepared to shut people down uh, if they dissent from it. Uh, I want to know what you make of that. Well, that is true. I I did mention academic mobbing has become a a feature, and you find a lot of people who are engaged in academic mobbing mobbing at the moment are what you could call left-wing academics. You can see, if you know them all, you you can see it you know people's backgrounds you can see who's on the list so, um, sometimes not always the case often the people who are defending um, free speech by writing letters and whatever are more mixed but um, I, I could see the change I think you're right but there's been a shift um, it's people are not so consciously left-wing or Marxist as they used to be I mean I, I gave a, a talk recently somebody asked me to be provocative at a launch of a social justice unit so I did I did a talk on from socialism to social justice and I, I showed how um, right from the Communist Manifesto, you know, workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains, to the Labour Party um, a statement about winning for the workers, not them by themselves, to the founding statement of the Labour Party, Clause 4 of the Constitution, to more recent um, statements about social justice. And gradually you see that um, 
what is gone from those is any sense of human agency. So everybody in education, almost everybody now, is in favour of seeing education as a force for social justice. I mean, I mean, people in the education departments, you know, they write books about researching for social justice. They think the purpose of education is to create social justice, not to educate, but to create social justice. But that is something that has, that's got to be done to people or for people rather than them do it for themselves. So I'd see that the shift in the left, and that's why I'd say it's gone therapeutic, is it's now um, a left-wing impulse which, uh, which sees people as lacking agency. So I think although they may dress it up in, um, you know, we're going to liberate people, it may, be, may seem that. I was just invited, as an example, I was just invited to a conference and I read the blurb and it was left-wing academics meeting to talk about how you can build, and this is true, on emotional fragility of students into some sort of liberation, some force for liberation. At so, least they're open about it. And, well, yeah, you know, unusually, that's true. I mean, that's the thing is you, you'd still dress it up in old-fashioned terms. It seems um, positive, but it's actually saying, you know, you haven't got agency, so we'll do it for you, which was the whole purpose of new labour in Britain, because they they did a commission on social justice in 1994 with John Smith, who would have been the leader, he died, but he would have been the leader instead of Tony Blair. And that changed the whole focus of things and that is much of our policies. But it is about you doing it for people and you know, them being a bit hopeless or helpless and unable to cope. And that is not the traditional view of the left. You know, the workers used to push people on the left. And when, and if you look back at when um, people were more left wing, I mentioned Anthony Arblaster, it was a campaign for academic freedom and democracy in the 1970s. All the left wing academics there but they were being pushed by people outside the wider social environment where, you know, there was Labour Party um, and revolutionary groups and unions all agitating. So it's not surprising that academics in that climate became left wing. So I don't I, I don't think it's um, um, something particularly about their ideology. It's just that they reflect you know, the existing state of affairs. And I think in a fairly uncritical way, you know, you, I think that's the... Um, the, the change for me of just reflecting the therapeutic ethos of society without criticizing it and there will be in denial of it i mean often when i've given talks about this and um you know we were catherine and i were invited all over to to talk about therapy people would deny it and say oh it's not true you know we're not in and, and so our challenge would always be look look around try and see it because before you, you can't because you can't deal with it until you convince people that it's actually happening and that's probably the hardest challenge you've got and the hardest challenge for free speech and academic freedom is to not treat people as if they're they're vulnerable and will wilt in front of criticism and um, an argument because it, it's um crit critical discussion that actually builds us as in as um human beings with potential and agency and if you deny um that ability to for young people to engage in discussion it's actually an act of violence against them it actually smashes their ability to um, develop as human beings. Well, that is uh, something uh, from my vantage point in Australia, I'm not too aware of with the new labour side of things. I mean, uh, from my from my own outside perspective, it did seem like uh, Tony Blair and uh, Gordon Brown were, you know, Labour moderates, Labour right kind of guys. I hear the story about uh, 
them reforming the economy, uh, continuing a bit of Thatcher's work, and uh, also the Iraq War. I don't necessarily hear about that social kind of therapeutic side. Is that something you can fill our listeners, particularly our Australian listeners, in on? Well, I think it um, you know, it occupied the educational sphere more than anything else. I mean, that's where you saw the turn. So um, <clears throat> I can give you an example. Um, one of um, Joanna Williams was um, did her PhD with me on the, the political um, construction of social inclusion under New Labour. And what she identified is how New Labour in the 10 years it was first in power, um, how they looked at people. And, and the shift was in sort of for three stages. First, they looked at people as needing help because they were poor, basically. So people had the traditional problem. They were poor, they hadn't got money, they hadn't got decent jobs. And then they, the second phase, they thought, because they couldn't get them jobs, that wasn't a great thing. But then they um, moved to seeing them as lacking social networks, not having the connections and the education. And the third phase of it was to say that um, the real problem with um, people who are at the bottom of the social pile was that they had psychological problems. You know, they couldn't cope. So the turn to over the, t- t- the period of the Labour government, so it starts off with those aims about trying to revitalise the economy and make a decent life and education for all, and then shifts slowly through the influence of you know think tanks like Demos into looking at social things and then psychological things and in some ways that that's a holistic approach like that's quite admirable to look at the sort of uh psychological uh barriers to opportunity for people so part of that is admirable but yeah continue well it's not admirable because i just think what happens then in um in when anybody's into any difficulties whether it's the areas that become um where the industries have gone instead of getting um, new creative initiatives, they end up with therapeutic initiatives. I, I, get, I went to give a talk in um, Scotland, probably about 2010, about adult education. And I thought, you know, it was the home, it was in Glasgow, the home of the Glasgow Kiss. You know the Glasgow Kiss? It was a headbutt. Oh, <laughs> tough area. And I thought, you know, what are they going to be doing? I'm, go- I'm going to talk about therapeutic education. And what are they going to be doing in the, the old mining villages and towns where industry was run down? And guess what? They're doing yoga and therapy, right? That's you know, counselling. So that's what you get. And the point about counselling and therapy isn't holistic. What happens is you, all it, it leads you just wanting more of it. And one of the strange things is we wrote the book, we thought... I suppose I hope that having written the book in 2008 with Catherine, um, it would come to an end, we'd be able to challenge it, and it's actually got stronger. The idea that everybody is mentally ill, potentially mentally ill, is now graining ground. And that, so what is good about everybody seeing themselves as mentally ill? Well, it's fine if you're in authority, and it isn't good for society for people to be seen as hopeless, and especially if they come to see themselves as hopeless. And you see it there. Adopt the language, and you can, you, you know, you can, you can still see it. And I think um, it's entirely a negative thing because therapy doesn't work. I mean, that's one of the other issues. I mean, the people who are doing a lot of the so-called therapy are not therapists. You know, the people with hardly any training, and I think you know, they're dangerous. And, and another anecdote is when we first did the book, we kept getting invited to um, 
um, conferences of, of psychologists and therapists. And we thought, why? You know, we're critical. And everyone we went to, they'd say, oh, yes, we agree with what you're saying, but that's not what we do. And then you go to the next one and they say, yes, so we agree with that, but it's not what we do. And of course, it is what they do. And we were just being used as sort of therapy for therapists. We'd say something critical about what that the therapists did in general. And they say, oh, yes, that's really bad, but it's not what we do. So they felt good about themselves. And I, I do think the, the idea that you constantly, whatever happens to you, you need counselling doesn't do you any good. I mean, we quote some studies in, in, in the book that show that if you have interventions, uh, uh, talking therapies, after something traumatic has happened, things get worse for you, not better. And I think um, you know, Vanessa Pupovac, who works at the University of Nottingham, has done some good work on what happens in the former Yugoslavia with a lot of initiatives where you know, they tend to have a therapeutic for form, whether it's you know based on work or activities. And then they go and leave people. So giving people therapy doesn't resolve their social problems. And, some, and somebody said to me, one of the great exports of um, um, the West to the, to the former Soviet Union was actually depression. Because um, people in the, former, in the Soviet Union thought they were having a hard time because they hadn't got food and had lacked material things. You know, get some Western intervention and you realise that the real problem is that they're depressed. So it's something internal rather than external. And I think um, you know, that's sort of it's a narcissistic turn that doesn't do anyone any good. You spend all your time looking inward and you just want more and more of it. So you've got to break out of that um, that imp impulse that they're forcing you to do. You know, always the time to look at you. Someone was telling me they're doing a study of um, um, Japanese workplaces where people have very much kept themselves to themselves, where it's now it's becoming almost mandatory to go to your boss and talk about your problems, your emotional problems, your psychological problems. Yeah, I, I don't, can't see that being very beneficial to the, you know, the development of the Japanese economy, economy or social life. So I, I think the constant need to explore your inner feelings is very damaging because it's much, the best way of dealing with them is to get out of yourself and get out into the world. It's much true as young people as it is for older people as well. You know, if you talk about young children needing to go out to play, well, we need to get out into the real world, world and engaged and not be so um, concerned with our own inner feelings because that just makes things worse. That's interesting. And I, I am curious if that that marks a bit of a change in our politics with... Uh, I keep going back to, you know, the old left-wing politics. There was an emancipatory uh, quality to it. There was a sort of... Uh, we want people to look outward. We want people to uh, solve problems. We want people to get out of ourselves. Whereas now it's a lot more identitarian and it's more, we want everyone to learn to love themselves and we want other people to love them. Yeah, that, well, it, has both, it has both a soppy side, as you said, um, let's love everybody and the sort of more dangerous, let's everybody um, absorb themselves with their own identity. And that was a political move here in the UK. I mean, after the riots of the 1980s, there was a very good tactic that was deployed against um, uh, communities. And, you know, if you take the Brixton and um, Hansworth, they were mixed. So it wasn't all black or Asian people. It was black, white, Asian. Everybody from the community were involved in those riots. But the strategy for dealing it was to give resources to people based on ethnicity. 
Queen, so that if you you know if you're in Handsworth, and Kevin Malick and others have written about this, if you're in Handsworth, you couldn't get resources by saying we the people of Handsworth in Birmingham want um, resources. You have to say we the Muslim community of Handsworth, or we the West Indian community need it. So resources were given and split up along those lines, and those, it's a very divisive situation if you do that. So I think um, you know that has gone on and on. So the, the turn towards um, identity politics wasn't just something that people did naturally it was something that was you know, done by the state and by the local state as well it was, and it it worked. top down yeah so, so i want to i want to turn to i mean we talk about uh academic bias part of me thinks if there is kind of this natural uh predilection towards uh the left amongst academics why do they feel that need to police the outsiders? Why do they feel the need to discipline uh, and in some cases sack those who differ from the orthodoxy? If, like, aren't they in some ways hurting the, their cause by making martyrs of those who don't conform to the orthodoxy? Well, if you, if you go through our list, I mean, I still think there's a therapeutic element to this because you can be authoritarian on behalf of the vulnerable. So I mean that's the, the that's the thing. you get the moral authority by being not strictly speaking the therapist but in the position of well, the different sorts of therapists of course the person who is defending you know the vulnerable gives you authority so you quite have to say cite these people because they're going to hurt you know you're either a, a victim or a victimizer or you're a therapist that's basically how it goes so if you if you're criticizing anybody and Janice Turner wrote a very good article about in the Times this. Um, about um, any sort of criticism or dissent being hate speech so they just think you're a hateful individual you know and therefore you should be condemned so there's no question of engaging with you in debate so that's you know, it's a nasty side of the therapy thing that you just you know, when you're engaged in therapy it's not a debate you know even talking therapy is not debate so you're not going to debate with people you're just awful people and it doesn't always take the banning side of course because we get unconscious bias training you know it's just a form of therapy, you know, ineffective and critically um, unsound, but, you know, everybody's doing these activities. So what tends to happen is all these, as alongside the more high-profile banning things, is people being forced to do mandatory training. So you get mandatory training in, um, in prevent. We have the prevent strategy to stop radicalization, and mandatory training in conscious bias, mandatory training Sounds in Sounds like re-education to me. It is re-education, but it's but there's no there's no education because essentially you sit and listen and you're passive, you know, or you may ask questions, you know, and all the evidence of the old um, racial awareness training in the in the 1980s and 90s was it had a, it was counterproductive, so if you, unless you engage in real debate, you know, you you cannot, um, you know, it's like to reinforce your prejudices rather than do the opposite, uh, and I sort of think one of the things I've tried to you know, convince all universities to do is not to have mandatory training. It's the same policy as um, Fire have and um, other organisations is to be against mandatory training about controversial issues. You know, if it's health and safety and how to deal with the coffee cups, fine. But um, if it's about diversity, equality, then it should be done through debate and discussion. And certainly in um, it can be really counterproductive in terms of the prevent training because, you know, I've written about it, and other people have written about the fact that police have got the training wrong, and you know, so what they're doing is is going to be um, very damaging. I do, on, on the prevent thing, I think one um, 
when when it was first um, mooted for universities, the the, um, the British police tapped into something very quickly that that students are vulnerable. They tapped into the victim culture, so they said, you know, we can uh, we can come in and help vulnerable students not be radicalised. So they were they were quite clever about that. They're quite sensitive to how universities have done it. So behind a lot of these initiatives is still a therapeutic thrust. And just because one or two are authoritarian, you know, in their hearts, when if, when they're calling for those bans, they think it's because they're protecting the vulnerable. And I, I think that's you see that generally. But of course, it doesn't happen. I mean, the bans um, often don't work. If you try to, but they do create a climate where, um, you know. Academics keep their head down and don't speak. And you know, one thing we've discovered in universities is um, I was on a panel in um, the East Midlands um, for prevent debates or debates that were about radicalization. And they wanted people who were brave enough to chair quite contentious debates. So I was on the panel. They closed it down after two years simply because people weren't having the debates anymore. So that's the response is not to um, challenge, but just to stop doing it. So there's a sort of um, quietism in the academy. So people just don't debate and discuss, partly because they they fear being criticised, especially now. You know, people warn you not to speak up about issues in case you know you get sacked. And one of the, one of the little shifts is that, that you know you do see that more on social media, the, the threat to your employer. That I think um, you know, universities haven't quite adapted to the fact that there, there could be a Twitter storm against a member of staff, for instance. Um, and you know, I've, I've been pressing them to deal with this so they don't respond immediately by you know, sacking a member of staff. So I do think you know, there's lots of challenges. But it's my take on it that it, the therapeutic ethos is there behind a lot of these initiatives. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that about the penalty for getting sacked because uh, there's an article in Spiked uh, from quite recently uh, by Tom Slater, and it's called Cancel Culture is Not About the Powerful. Uh, and he talks about how there's been this shift uh, amongst uh, the left who once believed, for instance, uh, in workers' rights and that uh, a worker had the right to their own private beliefs. Uh, the left have now members of the left such as Owen Jones have now shifted towards actually advocating quite right-wing and quite, I quote, neoliberal positions uh, that basically empower uh, employers to sack their employees based on uh, their private beliefs. Uh, Tom Slater goes into it and he actually quotes uh, Billy Bragg, the self-proclaimed socialist, who says... Uh, that there are circumstances where employers have the right to act and they have the right to sack uh, their employees. I want your take really on this shift about how uh, it does seem like there's this unholy alliance almost with the left-wing culture and corporate culture, which uh, it's so uh, beset on, like on the left, they want to be virtuous uh, and on in the corporate culture, they want to be, appear to be virtuous, I guess, uh, for their own PR initiative. Uh, and as a result, uh, they more or less, uh, they undermine things like due process, they undermine uh, freedom of religion and the right to, uh, you know, have have a job without being unfairly dismissed. Uh, so I would 
be interested in your take there. Well, it is, and it, it um, you know, the, the Billy Bragg case is interesting. I mean, the idea that because he was totally against free speech and in the favour of accountability, and on Twitter, I don't know if um, it's mentioned, he said that you should be accountable. And what, who to was the question, not to employers, but to Extinction Rebellion, to Black Lives Matters, to Me Too movements, so or undemocratic movements should determine whether you're allowed to say things. I think, um, I think uh, the left have lost any clear understanding of the state and the corporate state. I think perhaps it's a legacy of new labor being quite closely involved. They don't see um, the state in particular in the way that it was. I mean, if you're the old authoritarian state, it is, and the interesting example here is, um, I'll come to the corporate issue in a minute, but if you, in Scotland, they were going to have the name person scheme. Do you, do you aware of this? Anymore? No, I'm not aware of that. Where every, well, it, it was finally, um, after a long campaign, it was going to be law that every young person between birth, from birth till the age of about 20, would have a name person who would intervene between them, them and their parents and anyone else. So you'd have a state person monitoring the young people. And it, you know, there was major opposition to it, but not a lot of opposition. And the idea that the state is there to help you. When the state comes as um, a, a therapeutic state, it's harder to, to see what, what's very threatening. And as somebody once gave me the example, I used to think the state would be Darth Vader, you know, coming to uh, destroy you. And um, so in a lot of the literature, of course, the most um, policed and rigorously monitored place in, on the, in the world is what? Disneyland. So it's much more likely to be Mickey Mouse that comes to um, keep control of you than anything else. And it's I, I love that analogy, stuff. actually. I, I It reminds me, I put this to Tanvir Ahmed, sorry, but uh, everyone always talks about the novel 1984 and how we're living 1984. And in some ways that's true, but arguably I think the more... Uh, profound novel uh, was actually Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which is a much softer, almost feminine uh, state where everyone uh, receives dr drugs uh, that sort of uh, put them in their ideal state of mind. And we've got genetic engineering to, uh, to basically try to uh, conquer unhappiness. Uh, I feel like Brave New World is a more... Uh, is a closer reflection towards the future we're heading to. Yeah, well, that would fit the therapeutic approach. That's concerned with your mental health and your happiness. You know, that's why not just give people drugs. Um, but I do think what part of the corporate shift and the attitude to, as you, as you see it, um, James Hartfield wrote a book called The Equal Opportunities Revolution, which you, um, where he, he tracks what you know was obvious to anybody who was involved in trade unions is they traded off the battle for. Um, better paying conditions for equalities initiatives. So um, you know, they couldn't get paying conditions, but they'd have you know some policies about equality and diversity and other things, or, that, or the environment, whatever it is. And I think HR departments in businesses have become much more like the trade unions in the sense that they're, they're concerned with health and safety, you know, protecting workers, vulnerability. So and I think that led people that's to not be quite aware of what companies were about you know, they're much more and companies did themselves like to, you know to be in this sort of community focused caring company that's how they present themselves and so, so i think the left bought into that and they've lost the sense of what companies are about which is about productivity and profit and that's the, the difficulty so and the veneer i mean the, 
and James makes the point that the old trade unions, you know, were in a sense working in sort of a sort of hard. It was often antagonistic, but they knew that their job was about making things and building the economy, and workers would get better for that. But once that's gone, and it's replaced by a more nebulous, you know, we're all involved in a social enterprise together, then um, you lose the sense of what a firm is. And I think in that situation, you can call on people. And uh, you do see it on left wing, in left wing situations in universities where it's often people who are involved in campaigns, whether it's hope, not hate, or uh, any other ones who will turn against other lecturers and report them. You know, and want them to be disciplined. So I do think you've lost the sense of what the state is, and people have almost lost the sense of what a company is. And I think that's the effect of the left. So that's why you know they find it amazing that that they're being attacked for just wanting some something um, that they think is socially progressive to be enforced. I mean that is a real loss, and I just think people are not aware of it. I mean I sometimes have to say it in schools when I you know you have to remind people um, that. Um, when Ofsted come to visit, they're not there to be your friend. It's the state coming into into school, but that's not how they come in because they come in to safeguard. So when human resources also say, you know, it's the safety concern about your working conditions and you know your work-life balance and all, that's our main concern. So so the traditional trade unions now relate through HR departments to management. Everybody's singing from the same hinge here. Everybody's concerned about mental health in universities. It's a big issue for everyone. So and in that situation, you, can't, you, you start to lose any idea of corporateness. So the idea that you know, you're a capitalist business is just so old fashioned. You know? We're all together in you know, trying to build a better society and, more, you know, and improve well-being generally. So I think you know, I will always come back to the therapeutic element because I think it explains more than just somehow why these people suddenly turned on people. Because I mean, I, you know, I knew people who got criticised for their positions. You know, the case of um, Paul Emery, who um, got fired from the Fire Brigade Union for being a Brexit supporter, you know, and and I got in trouble um, when I was president of UCU for because I'd I'd written something again. You know, it's like um, the archaeology of offence, um, criticising institutional racism, you know, that concept. Because my argument was it lets racism off the hook by sort of blaming everybody. But not acceptable. So you do. so there are. I, I do think that you know, unions have got into bed with management in an ideological way that has confused everybody's understanding of what a company is is for. In fact, that most of the people in Britain are now employed by the state anyway in service industries, which is um, another issue. There are many service industries which are non-productive in some ways. That people have just lost the idea of capitalism and capitalist companies. Uh, with that uh, whole idea of like people have lost their understanding of the state uh, because uh, I, I said before that in some ways I'm a bit of a libertarian but I find I'm often at odds with uh, libertarians for instance because they're always almost defending censorship these days because censorship isn't really coming from the state so much as it's coming from corporate culture and uh, to give you an example uh, say the Israel Falau case, where you know the that must have made it over to the UK, right? The Israel Falau case, the yeah, yeah, yeah. the rugby player advocates uh, a traditional view of marriage, yeah. and everyone uh, defends the Wallabies uh, for firing him. Uh, like a lot of people on the right say, oh well, you know, companies have the right to fire employers that don't represent them, 
but to me, uh, it, it, it seems like we're arguing the wrong issue. It seems to me like uh, they, they're putting it as a sort of employer's rights issue, whereas I'm thinking of it more in terms of, well, you know, uh, we don't want people to be uh, silenced for their views. We want to be promoting a sort of a inclusive... Uh, n- not in the left sense, but an inclusive environment where people can have opposing views and they're not losing their job. Uh, but I'm I'm often clashing with libertarians who seem to only care if it's the state uh, that is silencing people. They don't care if it's a corporation or an angry mob. What do, what do you make of that? Yes, that's a very common view. I mean, um, we've had the debate about whether there is a therapy culture in universities or whether the biggest threat is from the state. And the only example they have is the state's imposition of prevent, um, the present, prevent duty on universities that you must, um, but you know, they, they neglect the therapeutic aspect. So I think the censorship is all around them and they don't see it. But some people do try and say that um, you know, in universities you should um, uh, not criticize management. You know, it's an absurd position because you have academic freedom. Managers like it, of course, and they'd like to restrict your academic freedom just to your research area. You know, um, it's the um, it's quite a common view on on you know, with unions as well. You know that you, you have that right, but not. I do think it's um, the, lo- the loss of the sense of it's, it's a strange thing that they've lost the sense of the state but also look for the state. But it's always looking for something from the past, because I think the, the danger was from state interference in the past, hardly ever from corporate interference, unless they were funding things that you didn't like. But I do think it's um, now just a, a way of, they love it when it's the state, because it takes it away from the therapeutic argument. So they don't have to look at themselves and what they're doing. They can just blame the state. And with, with companies, it's you know it, it's much the same. I, just, I do think... We, it's a, a hardly, we've got to remind people of what the state is and what a company is. If we do that, you know, we'll make, we'll make some progress. But you know, you are dealing with you know, things don't just go away. You know, the old attitudes, the old left are still there. You know, they're called, often referred to as the leftovers, but you know, they're still around in um, in groups. So they still have old-fashioned attitudes that tap into the new um, situation. But they're in denial. They're clearly in, in very much in denial about the therapeutic um, workplace. I mean, it is true. There's a chapter in our book, by the way, on the therapeutic workplace and that will have all these things happen in, in the same way in, in the workplace as they do in the university. So, um, is, is that your forthcoming school. book? If you... no, it's in the in the dangerous rise of therapeutic education because um, you, know, you get all the same activities. I mean, mindfulness is hugely popular with businesses in in the UK. It's one of the big things. So why are they doing mindfulness classes in businesses? You know, they clearly have lost the plot. And in that situation, it's not It's also popular that, with know. football clubs. I mean, our Richmond Football Club here in Australia uh, made headlines by doing mindfulness training. Yeah, and it's one reason why um, I think the English national team did so well in the last World Cup, because they were having mindfulness and counselling sessions and so on. Because it's just not true. But I just think. But one thing about mindfulness is just to. We did a session on whether um, mindfulness meant anything in this society for the battle of ideas, and it was hard to get anybody from mindfulness groups to come and talk because they don't want to debate. Of course, 
they want to do mindfulness, which is a different activity. It's too conflictual, you know, and this before all this we did get a couple to come and speak before they do it, they spend so much time doing the breathing exercises before you speak as well. So, you know, almost entertaining, but it's um, you know, not really productive. It's not what normally happens in businesses in the traditional capitalist sense. But I do think it, it's it is, you know, you, you ask that question about ideology and you know, it's a therapeutic ideology. Yeah. So and, and then it, it's really it, why it's really hard. It's really, really hard to challenge um, people in the, in the traditional way. So I used to spend as a trade minister lots of times telling people not to stand up and shout at the bosses you know, because you come over as some like something from the distant past, especially when they're being nice to you. You know, <laughs> so you have to try and work through these situations because you, you know, especially if you've got. A, a boss who may be quite vulnerable in some way, shouting at them doesn't work, you know. And everybody just expects you to be nice. You know? But um, Alan Bloom in his The Closing of the American Mind actually says that's the biggest problem in universities, that everybody's nice, too nice. Everybody wants to be nice and open-minded and not offend anybody. And in that climate, it's very difficult. It's very useful for employers, you know. You see it because they all present themselves as victims you know, or on the side of victims. And in that sense, you've lost the sense, you know, keep repeating, you've lost the sense of what a business is or what a company is. It might be one of the features that holds back econ economic development. I think that's, um, so it's worth challenging the therapeutic turn in every time you come across it. But it's interesting to talk about, I never thought about it in quite these clear terms before about why it is um, people are so blind to what a company is about. We're coming to uh, the end of uh, the episode, but I am just uh, as a final part. It is interesting. Uh, you were talking about how you know libertarians will always put it on the state because it's so much easier to attack the state than that therapeutic culture. So it could be argued, I guess, that the therapeutic culture has infiltrated all sides of politics. Really, it's not just the left, although traditionally we are looking at the left as being uh, the greater proponents of therapeutic culture. So I just want to close, and I always ask guests by asking, you know, what are your thoughts for the future? Uh, can things get better from here? What can be done to make things better? Well, this is a positive note. I, I thought you'd ask this question. And the real positive thing for me is not what we're doing, but what young people are doing. I mentioned earlier that the sudden... Um, change in young people's attitudes. So when I gave a talk at Warwick uh, on free speech on a panel, students came up to me afterwards and said, how can we set up a free speech society? How can we get some help? So academics for academic freedom do spend quite a bit of time. We set up um, you know, a network, a free speech network of groups that could help one another. But spontaneously, you know, people started setting up groups in Oxford, Surrey, um, Exeter, Kent. So there's been a change. There's a sudden change um, in young people. They want to see debate happening. And that's the most positive thing. So if you have a debate coming um, then from students, then that will change things. The difficulty with students, of course, is they cease to be students at some point and then move on to be, a, hopefully to be academics, and then they can perhaps continue in, in academia. But that's the one of the most positive developments that I did not see happening. And it's a real um, challenge for those who promote the snowflake generation because these people are not snowflakes. So loads of really brave individual young people setting up um, 
free speech societies, often in, in opposition, with a lot of opposition from universities. So that's the most positive um, thing at the present time. Yeah, I think maybe we should change our perception uh, of the youngest generation. Are they really the snowflakes uh, people believe them to be? Or is there a silent majority, I guess, that are, are more resilient and more ready uh, to question things? Yeah. And they're becoming less silent, which is great. Yeah, uh, uh, th- that's true. I mean, a, a silent majority is pretty ineffective if it stays silent. Well, thank you very much uh, for your time, Dennis. Thank you.